All right, this morning, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew, excuse me, Mark, chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And let me read that. In verse 1, it says, Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came... He began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracles there except that he lay his hands on a few sick and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the village teaching. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at this passage... Again, I pray, Lord, that as we study the Gospel of Mark, that we would get an understanding of who you are, the way you reveal yourself, and only that way. I pray, Lord, that you would not allow us to add any more information or take away any more, any more information about you than what the Scriptures reveal. Because if we do, we will all be end up being wrong. And I pray, Lord... Being wrong about you is deadly. Don't allow us to go there, Lord. Always feed our heart and soul with truth. We can trust the truth and enable us to follow it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Hometown Rejection. When Jesus visited his hometown of Nazareth, that he had actually been brought up in, You would think that his popularity that preceded him would cause the hometown folk to get together and receive him with open arms and give him a grand welcome. Wow, this is Jesus coming to our town. Man, we heard all about what he was doing. But that's not what happened. Something was already taking place deep within the recesses of the townspeople's hearts. In fact, what was taking place was and is the greatest wickedness that exists amongst humanity. I will not, at this point, tell you what it is. I will leak it out and let you find it out yourself. But I'm sure by the end it will be clear to you what it is. So, In this narrative, this is actually the second recorded visit Jesus makes to Nazareth. His hometown was about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. His previous visit did not go well at all. In fact, Jesus was violently rejected. It is recorded in the Gospel of Luke that the people were marveling over his gracious words that were coming from his mouth And they listen to him, and as they listen to him speak about the electing grace of God toward non-Israelites, 
that the unbelief of Israel uh, was apparent and they wanted to kill him by throwing him over a cliff. But Jesus escaped from that situation. So the visit in the Gospel of Luke came at the beginning of the great Galilean ministry of Jesus. That recorded here in Mark is a later visit to Nazareth. In Luke's account, Jesus appeared alone, announcing the beginning of his messianic mission. In the second visit, he came as a well-known teacher, accompanied by his disciples. In the first visit, Jesus invoked their violent, uncontrolled rage. In the second, they responded with a cool indifference and, a, and actually a, a personal insult. The violent rejection during the first visit did not keep the yearning heart of Jesus from giving his hometown folk another chance, another opportunity to receive him. Now, to get the background to this, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, and I want you to notice in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, this is one of the first visits. Some people say it's the same visit, uh, the same event, but it's... There's certain things that tell us different. Um, but notice in Luke chapter 4, verse number 14. It says in verse 14, And he began teaching in the synagogue and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And it was, as, it, as it was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In verse 20, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of the synagogues were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Verse 24, and he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up and and for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was not sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way, and he came down to Capernaum. 
a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. So, in a sense, that was the first visit. Now, we're looking in Mark, I believe, as the second visit. And I, the reason I believe that this is a separate event in Mark is because this time Jesus returns to Nazareth with his 12 apostles accompanying him. Uh, if you look at Mark chapter 6, back there in verse number 1, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So this visit to narrative came about a year after the citizens of the town attempted to murder Jesus. Furthermore, by this time, Jesus' popularity was at its height. Uh, His preaching of the gospel of the kingdom has gone out to many, and many had come into the kingdom believing it. Plus, his miracles were well and widely known and his apostles had already been chosen at this point. Now, however, for many, the verdict about who Jesus exactly is was still out for many people after the evidence was in. Deciding as to who Jesus is may turn out to be a very dangerous time for these people. Now, just for your information, uh, this is another conflict narrative in this gospel, and it has the ABA pattern to it. Remember, I was talking about the sandwich pattern. There's the top of the bread, the peanut butter and jelly in the middle and the bottom. Well, today we're going to look at the top of the bread, and the top of the bread is opposition in his own town. In the middle of the bread is really the point or the focus of this narrative, And the middle is in chapter 6, verse 7 to 13, and that's the visit uh, where the disciples were sent out on a given mission where they would go out uh, without Jesus but um, would accomplish a mission with all the authority of God. And then, of course, on the other side was the rejection story, another rejection story, the arrest and death of John the Baptist. So right now we're looking at the top, and that's the first rejection uh, narrative, and that's where we'll begin this morning. So as Jesus was, his practice, uh, he went into, uh, it was the Sabbath, uh, and he found, every Sabbath you found him preaching, teaching, and doing mighty works, and so in verse number two of Mark chapter 6, it says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished. Let me stop right there. Now, I want you to notice that the listeners' response to Jesus' teaching was that they were astonished. Now, some suggest that this particular verb, which is an unusual one, can be translated dumbfounded. I believe that is a good translation. They were dumbfounded. All right, now remember, he's coming back to his hometown. All those people in that town know everything that they can possibly know about Jesus. Probably in Nazareth, the population was only around 200 people. And Jesus spent from at least two years old to 30 years old there. So the people 
knew who he was. They knew his family. They knew all those things. So for them to be dumbfounded is a very, very good word. So Jesus' hometown folk were thinking, he's just an ordinary man whom we know so well. We saw him grow up from the age of two into his 30s, and he is saying astonishing things. And we have heard about the incredible things he has performed, which seem to be utterly beyond him, what we know about him. So this becomes a key thing in this passage, listening to Jesus and receiving his message and his person with the wrong attitude can prove to be deadly to those, that group of people or to individual people. That we cannot make up things about Jesus. We can't just limit him to a, a certain category or a certain time frame or a certain amount of information. We have to get the whole picture. And that's what the gospel does Show us. It gives us the whole picture. So the characteristics revealed about the person of Jesus Christ can either go one way or the other. In this sense, there was a downward step into a very dangerous way of thinking. And here's the first thing that took place. When you know someone's heading in the wrong direction concerning Jesus you'll find that they are limited in their knowledge of him. So their astonishment, the first thing is this, their astonishment, their bewilderment led to derogatory questioning. They began to ask questions about Jesus. So this astonishment led to a kind of derogatory form of questions which gave way to a different attitude towards Jesus, an attitude actually of agitation and indifference. Actually, in the next two sentences, there are six questions. One set of questions focuses on Jesus' ministry. Uh, The other set focuses on Jesus being just an ordinary town homeboy. And so let's look at the questions that they ask Concerning Jesus, in verse number 2, it says this. It says in the last part of the verse, uh, it starts asking questions. It says, they were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? That's the first thing. Now, what, what were they asking? They were asking this. What is the source of Jesus' ability to do all these things, to know all these things? And so the source of things, remember, could be Twofold, it could be the source could be God or the source could be angels or demons, right? That's the source. There's no other sources that there are. And so they're thinking in this, these, in this frame, with this framework in their mind. And so the source of something is very important because the source could be either reliable or unreliable, And just to remind you that the Gospel of Mark informed us that the leadership of Israel had already concluded the source on which Jesus operated. And of course, the critics 
against Jesus, accused Jesus of being a sorcerer in cahoots with Satan. So they already, that was already in the mindset of the leadership that the leadership had already put out there and was trickling all throughout the land of, of Israel that Jesus, listen, he's, got, he's in cahoots with demons and that's how he can do these things. All right. A second question in verse number two is this. It gets more specific. as saying, and what is this wisdom given to him? Or again, source of wisdom could be God. That means if it's from God, it has to have a heavenly source. It comes down from above. All right. It doesn't originate here on the earth. Or the source can be earthly. All right. And that means it would be just human or demonic. Now, so the townspeople knew Jesus didn't study under any rabbis, that he had no formal education. So they concluded that someone had to give Jesus this wisdom because no commoner could have acquired what he was telling them and how he was explaining things. But... The epistle of James, of course, later on that comes after uh, this time, uh, brings our attention to the source of wisdom. And there's only two sources of wisdom or two forms of wisdom. There is wisdom that comes from below, uh, which is from the world around us. Uh, it is a wisdom that is, represents the best job that humans uh, human intellect can can do to understand and execute life. But that wisdom is apart from wisdom that comes from the fear of God, from where it says in Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, right? That's apart from that. That's man trying to figure out life without God. That's what earthly wisdom is. Right? And so, in fact, in James, if you'd like to turn there, in James chapter 3, verse 15 through verse number 17, it gives us a good picture of... Now, remember, James was the brother of Jesus. At the time that we're looking at this scripture, James was not converted. All right, But we know that, of course, obviously, he did get converted. And he, and he gives us probably the best understanding of what wisdom the two sources of wisdom are than anybody in scripture and it says in verse number 13 of chapter 3 who among you is wise and understanding let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. So he's describing there, there is a wisdom. Yes, there is a wisdom that is from the earth, but that wisdom is limited to the the frail and finite life of ungenerate people trying to figure out the meaning of life without a relationship with the true and living God. And then he said, secondly, that it's natural. That means it's sensual. It's not spiritual. It's not possessing the spirit of God. Um, It's just physical and material. It's life 
of the natural world, the spiritual part of the world that people try to figure out without divine revelation. Wisdom from the mental and emotional impulses of fallen humanity, depraved in their concepts and their desires and their aspirations about what the true and living God is. And then he says another thing about it in James, that this wisdom is demonic. It is demon fooled around with, I call it. It's stuff that demons fool around with. It's, it's, it is demonic in character, proceeding from an evil spirit, not necessarily Satan directly, but demons and those who further Satan's work in the world. So James detects the work of demons as those who corrupt harmony, not only in the world, but especially in the body of Christ, where he says in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. That is the result of worldly wisdom. That's all it'll bring you. It will not bring you anything else but that, and that's where it usually leads. But James also tells us of another kind of wisdom. In verse number 17, it says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed uh, whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, that this is wisdom that comes from God. It is truly satisfying because it starts and it ends with the fear of the Lord. The wisdom that comes from God is not arbitrary wisdom based on subjective religious experience. Rather, it is sourced in God's revelation to man, a revelation that is objective, that is rational. You can think about it. That's why the Bible always tells us that your mind needs to be transformed because God doesn't bypass your mind to teach you who he is. He uses your mind, he transforms your mind, and he gives you heavenly wisdom to be able to understand spiritual things from a perspective that is true and and honest and clear. So see, the word of God is not only, uh, it is not only uh, subjective, but I mean, it is not only rational, but it's also authoritative and clear and produces results. And this wisdom is from above. That's why the Bible says here, but the wisdom from above is first pure. So godly wisdom is without hypocrisy. It's free from all sham and pretense. It has nothing to hide. It's like an open book. It's straightforward. It's genuine, and it's sincere. And the result of it is that the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. So, see, the bottom line is that when someone receives the source of truth that comes from above, they could have peace not only with God through Jesus Christ, but peace with each other in families and in community, and, of course, peace within their soul where the turmoil of soul is calmed by their understanding of who God is. See, that's the wisdom that leads someone to salvation. So people are going to search and obtain 
wisdom from some source, the spiritual, the God-fearing person will depend on spiritual wisdom while those who are unspiritual will follow after carnal and worldly and demonic and sense-based wisdom. And the classic, that classic allegory by Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan wrote, if you never read that, you should someday, where he calls this particular person the Mr. Worldly Wise Man. He's wise, but he's worldly wise. He's not wise in the sense of Scripture, in the sense of getting their understanding from God's Word. All right, so back to the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to notice that, so they're asking these questions about who Jesus is. And they're, they're concluding their answers by just earthly wisdom. And so that's what it says in verse number two, the last question there. It says, and such, where did he get this power from? Uh, it says, and such miracles as these performed by his hands. So again, they're asking for the source. What's the source of Jesus' power? Well, the source is either going to be God's spirit or it's going to be good angels or demons. Uh, so the, remember, the scribes already documented as official opponents of Jesus that they were uh, they could no longer downplay the authenticity of Jesus' miracles, so they had to come up with some explanation as to how Jesus, in his power, does what he does. And, of course, they conclude in Mark chapter 3, the scribes came down from Jerusalem in verse 22 and were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub and he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. In other words, they were concluding Uh, that the source of Jesus' power was demonic, and they were concluding wrong. So, see, they're they're thinking about what's the source of where all these things are coming from. So, see, these questions are not questions to get information to solve a problem. These questions are derogatory questions. These questions are driving them deeper away from Christ and not to Christ. And that's why questioning incessant questioningly about whether the Bible's this, whether Jesus is that, on and on and on. You know, there has to be a time you have to stop questioning and start believing. All right? So questions could actually leave people in the worst state that they can possibly be in on this side of eternity, and that's very dangerous. All right, so derogatory questioning led to rejection. Verse number 3 of Mark chapter 6. Look what it says. Now they begin to question him as a common man. They're saying in verse number 3, is not this the carpenter? Is not this the technon? That That was a word used in the Greek that meant it was a general term referring to a tradesman someone who worked in a variety or with a variety of materials, whether wood, stone, or metal. Now, I know here it says in Scripture that is not this the carpenter, but that's very limited as to what this word actually means. Actually, this some people say that Jesus was a stonemason. See, he was all those things because uh, the townspeople concept of this long-time resident was that there was nothing extraordinary about him, only that he was a skillful craftsman. 
In fact, they most likely were recalling the things that Jesus made for them. Hey, he made my plow in which I used to prepare my ground to plant crops. He made the yoke which keeps my oxen from wandering off while I work them in the fields. Jesus made my table and chairs and the utensils I use in my, my house. In fact, Jesus built the stone wall around my sheep pen. See, they were thinking just in earthly terms. They could not get past this Jesus being just an ordinary man. And uh, some would say, we remember him as a skilled craftsman, but not as a skilled prophet or teacher. We cannot picture Jesus as the bearer of divine truth. We cannot recall him being very impressive or important. So just imagine all those that time that Jesus spent in his own town being this craftsman, using uh, tools and building things for people. He never at one time displayed that he was any other than ordinary. Not until he turned 30 and he was called to the ministry of why he came into the world. And that's when everything changed. Jesus laid down his hammer. He laid down his tools and he took up the word of God in a way that no one could ever imagine. In fact, they go deeper into it and notice what they say in verse number three. Not only in verse number three is he just a carpenter, but the son of Mary. The son of Mary and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? See, what's going on here? Jesus is, again, being examined by them, but in a very derogatory way. Jews usually only name the father even after the father had passed away. And here it's recorded he's the son of Mary. Now, this, this is an exceptional and out of the ordinary way of saying things because in his first visit to Nazareth, it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, if you remember me reading it there, they were saying, is not this the son of Joseph? But here in Mark, they refer Jesus to Jesus as the son of Mary without reference to his father. This is actually an insult and could even bring into question the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. Now remember, Mary was impregnated divinely. Joseph did not know her sexually yet, and so the people knew, the people were thinking here, we don't even really know who, who the father is. You see, this is very derogatory, it's very demeaning. They are, they are digging a hole for themselves that is not good. And, but you know what? This type of reasoning happens all the time when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to truth. It happens all the time. And people think they're justified, and, uh, and they're even honoring the whole intellectual pursuit of finding out truth. But in this case, well, we know that his brothers and his sisters were not 
falling over to follow him. We already found that out in chapter 3, verse 21. Remember what happens in chapter 3. His mother and brothers come to get him because they thought he lost his senses, that he was out of his mind. The intention of the, his family members was literally to get him in their power again. His own family concluded that he had taken leave of his senses, that Jesus had, had uh, kicked up so much dust and stirred up so much controversy, it was time for him to come home and convalesce and be taught again that what he's doing is all wrong. But remember, at this time, his mother and his brothers were not believers yet. In fact, that's what it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. It says this, for not even his brothers were believing him. Remember, his family was still part of the outside group. They weren't part of the insiders. They did not repent and believe in Jesus as of, as of yet. And, of course, the hometown folk weren't helping anything. There was nothing in this town that was leading to a proper conclusion of who Jesus is. But remember, thank the Lord for this, that all of Jesus' brothers came, became followers of Jesus after the resurrection. We find evidence, uh, ev- evidence of this in, in other passages, like it says in Corinthians, the resurrection chapter, Corinthians chapter 15. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, and to all the apostles. And then in Acts chapter 1, these all with one of mine were continually devoting themselves to prayer among, with, among them the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. All right? And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, uh, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? All right, so again, in Scripture, the brothers... The family, uh, Mary, all were acknowledged as believers in Jesus Christ. But the townsmen could not solve the mystery as to how Jesus obtained these gifts. The townspeople and his family members did not know that Jesus possessed such wisdom and miraculous power during his 30 years in Nazareth. And if you look at the end of Mark chapter 6 and verse number 3, notice what it says. And they took offense at him. They took offense. Now, this implies that these people in Nazareth were on the way of being trapped. They didn't think they were trapping themselves, but they were actually trapping themselves. Trap, being trapped by what? Well, to come in contact with Jesus to recognize his word and his power is fatal for all who react to this contact in unbelief. His homies refuse to recognize Jesus' true personhood as Isaiah the prophet had displayed him, where he read uh, from the prophet Isaiah. So that's where Jesus says in verse number four that Jesus did grow up in an insignificant little town. Jesus says in verse number four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. 
So, see, Jesus' home, hometown of Nazareth was small and insignificant place, but it was the place that God would raise up a prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks to people in behalf of God, someone who is commissioned and dispatched by one who has authority. Author of the book of Hebrews highlights the authority of Christ, where Christ is the first and foremost, the one who has been sent by the Father. In fact, Jesus said, I speak nothing of my own authority. I speak only with the authority of the one who sent me. In other words, God the Father sent Jesus to provide for man's salvation. If Jesus, the prophet, as said here, brings a message from God the Father, and that message is rejected, well, then there is no other message. He is the final word from God the Father. There is no other message that comes from anywhere where men could be saved. So Jesus said, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his native town, among his own relatives, and in his own home. Have you felt that as a Christian yet? That when you try to tell the gospel to your family, it's not like they're opening their arms, welcoming you in and sitting at the table and listening to every word you say and responding to that in a very positive way. Usually they're ushering, ushering you out, right? They're turning a deaf ear to you. They're not inviting you anymore. When you walk in the room, they walk out of the room. See, that's a very natural thing because you're bringing, if you are faithful to bring the word of God and they know that, they won't want to hear it. But there will be someone who wants to hear it. Thank the Lord for that. So the townsmen did not recognize that God was at work in Jesus in a new way, inaugurating God's sovereign reign in the lives of those who who would respond in faith and repentance. They thought they knew who Jesus was. However, the source of their conclusion was fleshly, worldly, and demonic. They got Jesus wrong. People don't think that's a big deal today. But if you get Jesus wrong, it is the greatest wickedness that will exist amongst humanity. And what is the greatest wickedness that will exist amongst humanity? Well, if you didn't figure it out yet, it's unbelief. Unbelief. So rejection of Jesus by derogatory questioning is driven now by the sin of unbelief. Look at verse number 6. And he wondered, Jesus wondered at their unbelief And he was going around the villages teaching. Now, the only time in Mark that Jesus is said to wonder or to marvel, well, there's only two times in Scripture that Jesus wonders and marvels. One of them is right here in this passage. He wondered at their unbelief, great unbelief. And there's a second place where Jesus marveled at great faith. If you remember the passage, 
It says when the, the, uh, he was in Capernaum and the centurion came to him and entreated him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering and in great pain. And he said to them, I will come and heal him. And then the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another one, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And now Jesus heard this, and he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. See, Jesus either marvels at great unbelief or he marvels at great faith there's no in between so no one should dare assume to be able to reject Christ repeatedly without impure, with, with impunity there are consequences that are eternal if you get Jesus wrong in fact, back in Mark chapter 3, verse 29, it's in, there's an eternal sin connected to it where it says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. See, if you conclude Jesus wrongly and you don't believe in him, that is the sin that leads to death. That is the sin uh, that brings terrifying judgment. That is the sin that leaves someone helpless and hopeless to ever have, be able to have eternal life. That is a sin that is the greatest wickedness that exists amongst humanity, and that is the sin of unbelief. And it's not only the sin of not believing as Lord and Savior, but it's the sin it's a, a sin that's also committed amongst God's people when we don't believe that he can do what he says he can do. There should be no unbelief amongst us if we have the scriptures. Hebrews gives us an exhort, or exhortation to avoid the sin of unbelief where it says in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. See, this passage is telling us to watch out for each other so there will exist no unbelief amongst us. And it would be truly sad for someone to have such a heart because the term for heart is that term that talks about the center of our will, who we really are, the inner life. And the trouble with unbelief is it always is in the heart. It's always deep inside of you. It's the, it's the seat of your will. So that's why it's the greatest wickedness that exists in the world is this thing of unbelief. Unbelief is, is a special kind of evil because unbelief tends to make a heart evil, and an evil heart has a tendency to turn from the living God. That's what it says in Hebrews. An unbelieving heart falls away from the living God. 
that they are turning from the great and awesome and dreadful God who is able to punish and avenge their sin for all eternity. So not believing, according to Hebrews, not believing in Moses, God's faithful apostle and mediator is one thing, but not believing in the greater than Moses, the faithful apostle and high priest Jesus Christ is quite another thing because it is a damning thing if you reject God's final revelation. And isn't it a sad commentary and repeated so often today that people hear the message on how God provides deliverance and they dismiss it and set it, as, uh, set it aside as if it doesn't apply to them. What they're really ex- doing is expressing their unbelief. They, they probably will not conclude that, but that's what the scripture concludes. And the first thing really to notice if someone gets on the path of unbelief is that they will turn their affections towards the world and what it has to offer and how it concludes issues. They will turn to serve and celebrate what their own hands can create and what their own minds can conclude. That humans will idolize the wisdom from a human source, from gurus and from imams and from priests priest and shaman guides and fortune tellers and hand and card readers that are all over the place today. And then some articulate professors and feisty talk show hosts who become moral and spiritual compasses of our day. And people follow them and believe them. And they are just using worldly wisdom and never will come to a knowledge of the truth with that wisdom. To worship what everyone in the culture is worshiping is, is, is a deadly thing. A second thing to notice if someone gets on, the, uh, on and stays on the path of unbelief is that God will turn from them and give them up to the twisted desires of their own heart. God will hand them over to worship the gods that they prefer, like it says in Acts 7, verse 42. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me, that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? Or house of, O house of Israel, you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Rama, the images which you made, were made to worship. I also will remove from you, you beyond Babylon. In other words, if people, if a person rejects God's general revelation, And then when God gives them special revelation and that revelation is unfolded to them and they reject that also, then in both cases, the only thing left for that person to do is to remain an idolater, to worship the figment of their own imagination and their own thoughts or whatever else anybody else presented to them. So looking outside of God's plan for deliverance And blessing always leads to further bondage. The one useful way that we can prevent such evil amongst us is found in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. 
It says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's in the same context about talking about an unbelieving heart. So here's the preventive medicine. Encourage one another day after day. That's regularly. Do it continually. What do you do? You urge people, you urge others to continue in the faith toward God and not to fall into judgment by turning away from his full and perfect provision for sins through the Son and the High Priest, Jesus Christ. So salvation is not only a present experience, but also a future gift. And these can only be obtained by perseverance in Christian development. That's the sanctification of the Spirit, that once a person believes in Christ, they continue in that belief for the rest of their life. So in a very real way, our belief in Christ should be getting stronger and stronger and stronger till we can say like the songwriter this morning, I have decided to I have decided to follow Jesus, even seeing his family members being killed. See, that's, that's real faith. And that's the kind of faith that God wants to build into us. He wants the kind of faith that God does great things amongst his people because they believe him. They trust him. That God actually converts people to himself and delivers them from the condemnation of sin because they genuinely believe, because the Spirit of God is at work work amongst God's people. And God is going to save people, genuinely transform them and rescue them from their sin. Now, if you're right there in Mark, look at the last passage, verse 5. The sin of unbelief does something quite disappointing. It shuts out the mercy and grace of God from the people. Look what it says in verse 5. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick and healed them. See, the townspeople unbelief is, is, is really is in marked contrast to the faith of those who benefited from Jesus' ministry at Capernaum. The Gospel of Matthew attributes the small number of miracles performed in Nazareth to the unbelief of the people, where it says in Matthew 13, 58, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So God will not work where he is not wanted. He will not work where he is not believed. Unbelief leads to God restricting his power, to restricting his blessings. Now, the encouraging thing about this passage is that I think our Lord knew a few believers were there. And so because of that, his mercy and grace healed a few. But that's it. And so Nazareth, the the very hometown that Jesus grew up, outright rejected the only one who could save him. That's a sad story. But that is a story that's often repeated. So what was Jesus teaching his apostles from this first rejection narrative? 
Well, this question was succinctly synthesized by professor and author Grant Osborne in his teaching on the text uh, commentary on, on the Gospel of Mark where he says this. In conclusion, this is what he was teaching, that mission to a lost world often will result in resistance and hostility. God didn't promise us a rose garden. Matter of fact, people say to me, oh, since, you know, I'm sure when I become a Christian, things will get better. No, things may get a lot worse when you become a Christian. Because now the flesh, the world, and Satan are against you. Before they were kind of, you were flowing together with them. But you have the Spirit of God. You have the Word of God. So there's going to be resistance and hostility as a believer. Secondly, those closest to a person often are the last to recognize that person's gift and calling. Matter of fact, they may be the ones like the townspeople and relatives that totally reject you, that cast you out, that write you out of your, their will because you became a believer of Jesus Christ. That, that's part of the turf. That proves you're doing something. And then the last thing, that those who are not open to Jesus may discover that God is no longer open to them. That the Spirit of God may not be speaking to a person once they reject, outright reject Christ. So see, this passage of Scripture has many things going on in it. And it's something that we can learn from as we live our Christian life. That there shouldn't be any unbelief amongst us. That our faith should be growing strong. That we should use our gift. And if it's not recognized by people, so be it. Just use it. Tell the gospel. But telling the gospel will bring resistance and hostility. Those are givens. Don't give up throwing the towel because those things happen. Matter of fact, those are greater confirmations than you're doing something than anything else. And keep going and let your faith grow as you're studying the word of God and the knowledge of God is getting more clear in your mind about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do. Live your life there. And believe me, I know one thing. It'll be an exciting life. It'll be an exciting life to live for Christ. So, that is the first rejection narrative. Next time we'll pick up the middle of the sandwich and then the other slice of bread underneath and we'll see what the main point is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again, your goodness to us in allowing us to know the word of God, to have it in our hands, to be able to grapple with it, to be able to see how other people responded to it and we see the same response today gives us confidence and just helps us to know that this, the word of God, is the truth. It is the very revelation that you've given us on this side of eternity to strengthen our faith once we believe, not only the belief first in Christ as the only provision that God's given for our eternal salvation and the forgiveness of sins, but once we believe you, and have your spirit and your word, our faith just grows stronger and stronger and stronger where we realize, Lord, that we are just sojourners in this world. We are just passing through. 
And what we want the most is we want you to use us. We want to be the, the witness and the testimony to our families. We want to have the faith in God where we see great things happen. We see miraculous things happen. We see that there's nothing impossible with the God who's created the heaven and the earth, the God who has given us our final revelation in Christ Jesus. And Lord Jesus, you, the very one who died in the place of sinners, who satisfied the wrath of God, who shed your blood to forgive us our sins, who rose again to defeat Satan and death, and who ascended into heaven and is seated at this moment at the right hand of God, and you are coming back again. And we're all part of that plan is, Lord, truly exciting. And, Lord, use us. And, Lord, please keep us away from the mindset that leads to unbelief. And let us grow in faith. And I pray this this morning in the precious and the holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, this morning, we do have our Lord's table.